Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear. Now, is there a sadder story in the entire history of pop music than that of Karen Carpenter. Um, I, I honestly don't think there is. And, uh, and this new memoir, Lead Sister, is a fantastic insight into the band dynamics and into what its real life was like on the inside of one of the most enormous success stories of the 1970s. And it's an absolute heartbreaker. And it's the work of Lucy O'Brien. Lucy, it's lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Not at all. Where are you? Where do we find you? Oh, so I'm northwest London, and I'm in my loft, and I can see Wembley Arch of the. Oh, Wembley fantastic! Yeah, oh, very exciting. <laughs> very good. Well, look, the um, where to start? I mean, you say in the book, I think you were nine when you first heard the Carpenters. What impression did you get of their music and of 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 the kind of uh, impossibly gorgeous America actually that they wrote about? <coughs> so two things really. Excuse me, off. Um, uh, I remember um, uh, seeing um, Rainy Days and Mondays, and it was a video, um, and and it there was this female drummer, and she was singing at the same time, and I thought she looked really cool. I thought, well, that looks like a really good thing to do. I, you know, that that's you know, there was something very inspiring about that, um, and then um, I just got into, as as we know that through the 70s as the hits racked up um we saw and heard the carpenters pretty much daily on the radio and they came over to play live i was a bit young to see them but um i remember they captured this idea of america that going back then um england seemed very cold and gray and there was there was something about america that the carpenters represented eternally blue skies beautiful sunshine like big wide cars and the sound to match it something very very lush um 
and um, and something really inspiring too. So that those very strong memories um, uh, with, with uh, associated with the carpenters. Where does the title come from? Just we should ask that. These lead sisters. Yes, yeah, so lead sister. Funnily enough, they were very big in Japan, and um, uh, a, a Japanese magazine. It was a typo where instead of saying lead singer Karen Carpenter, they put lead sister Karen Carpenter. <laughs> And she really liked that. And um, uh, and then she had a T-shirt, special T-shirt made with lead sister slogan on. Um, so on their 76 world tour, when she did her big drumming um, solo, she would wear her T-shirt. So I thought it would just seem like a nice... No, it's a great title. So talking about the brother-sister thing, obviously it's brother-sister act it starts as. Wasn't one of the things he, he keep returning to throughout the book? He was kind. He was the chosen one, wasn't he? Is that is that fair to say? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so he was. He was like uh, the anointed one. Um, definitely, um, Agnes Carpenter, who was their mother. He was definitely her favourite. And um, and I I had a really interesting uh, interview with Nikki Chin, one of her former boyfriends. You know, the wonderful um, glam rock producer songwriter who said that um, one thing that Karen opened up about was she really felt keenly that favoritism um, uh, and that really affected her the way um, Richard was was seen as the genius in the family. Um, and she felt that she'd been overlooked from quite a young age, even though she played ball and she was very polite about his um, contributions to the band and she was very respectful. Um, there was a way in which she felt she had to fight for attention. But, but, but also that relationship was oddly, oddly turned upside down, was it? Because as far as the public was concerned, she was the star. Yes, there was that too. Um, our people loved her voice and definitely did see her as the star. But she had a deep insecurity about her talent. Um, and, and obviously that has roots in, in a lot of family issues that went way back. Um, but like... I find it very interesting that someone like John Lennon, for instance, um, met met her um, and said, "I think you've got all." Oh, I can't do a Liverpool accent, but you know, said, "Try the most wonderful voice, love." Um, and she was like, "Oh wow!" Um, you know, a Beatle has said he really likes my voice, but she just couldn't quite take it on. She couldn't believe um, that she was really that distinctive. She didn't, she didn't, she didn't start as a singer, did she? <clears throat> so, she only came to the fore gradually, is that true? Yes, that's right. So um, her first love was drumming and she was an instrumentalist. And um, I, I love um, exploring that side of her story. She went from the high school marching band to um, getting persuading her parents to buy her this brand new drum kit. And she's like 15, 16 years old, whacking the drums, practicing day in day out listening to um joe morello drumming um and and just copying it and with this incredible sort of fierce dedication so in a sense that was that was where she felt most comfortable that was that was her identity as a musician how did, how did it's, it's very unusual though is it for you know californian girl um, you know, at the time of uh, the Beach Boys and, you know, everything that was happening there, the psychedelic rock. And she's listening to these bebop drummers. 
And uh, how how did that happen? How was she getting access to that stuff? Was that through Richard or was it through the kind of jazz that the trio were playing or what? Yeah, so it was a combination of things. Their father, Harold Carpenter, was a big um, vinyl aficionado and he collected, uh, you know, he had very broad tastes and he was into his jazz as well. Um, And they had this basement area downstairs in, in the house that was just given over to music. It was like, I think... Richard even put a notice when he was a bit younger saying Richie's Music Corner and they used to hang out in the the basement listening to and kind of deconstructing records all the time Um, and jazz was a big part of it and that was obviously um, part of their very first incarnation as the Richard Carpenter Trio. Somebody says, I can't remember who it is now, they said uh, drummers are like hockey goalies. No one knows how to talk to them apart from another drummer. And I thought that was a really interesting point. But was that one of the things that, because there were quite a lot of them that set her apart from other people, you know, her sort of tomboyishness and also just being a girl drummer. I mean, that's not, that wasn't something that a lot of people could yeah, connect with. I, I think that's that's really true. Uh, and again, you know, that was something that fascinated me as I was, I was exploring the story was this kind of Argo that she, her own very unique language that she adopted that was sort of a little bit bebop, a little bit beatnik and shortening everybody's names in a way that was quite irreverent and peculiar to her. Um, and... She used to hang out in this place called Studio City, which was a big drum store in, in L.A. And mostly on a Saturday afternoon, it would just be full of guys. But she would be there just, you know, hanging out, having conversations. <clears throat> she she studied with a jazz drummer, a guy called Bill Douglas. And I just think, God, she, she really was a tomboy. She, that This was her world, a world that she was comfortable in. And, and that was that was her. Um, and... And that really stood out um, in terms of the time. You're thinking kind of 1960s when female drummers were quite rare. <laughs> uh, Who were those female? There's a honey lantry of the honeycombs. That's about yes. it. Motuck. Well, Motuck was probably well, a bit later. Until a little yeah. bit later. So really there was no one around at the time. Um, oh, you know, Viola Smith, 1930s drummer, who used to play in some of the, the big bands. Um but on the whole, Karen really was out on her own there a bit um, from, from that time. So when she starts, but the thing that really makes her stand out when she's, when they start getting in the fringes of the music business is her voice, isn't it? Yes, yes, Because it's Joe Osborne, of the, one of the bass players of the, of the legendary Wrecking Crew, the Los Angeles studio, session musicians. He he fastened upon her quite quickly, didn't he? He he did a lot of work with her early on. And I, one of the interesting things to me is it wasn't easy for them to get into the music business, was it really? Even though people recognised that she yeah. had an extraordinary yeah. yes. instrument. That's right. Um, so she did, and she released a couple of singles on Joe Osborne's um, Magic Lamp label that sort of disappeared without trace. It was just... I mean, maybe 500 copies of the the single. Um, And she and Richard were part of this outfit called Spectrum that was like a a quite complex vocal harmony group, um, also multi-instrumentals. And people just didn't know what to do with them, basically. They didn't slot into any kind of nice, easy, uh, you know, they weren't weren't particularly psychedelic. They weren't particularly rock. um, uh, And... Yes, they 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 were definitely 
um, had a, had a sense of easy listening, but that was still in its infancy. That whole genre was really in its infancy, and it wasn't until Herb Albert from A and M heard heard their demos, and suddenly he had the vision of how yes, I know what we can do with them, and and kind of steering them towards. So, what, so what was it that he did with them, or that, that was done with them? You know, it was just really good, simple songs, wasn't it? Somebody, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I think he. First and foremost, he loved her voice and he thought, I've just got to have, you know, he he's a musician's musician, really. Um, and so he was like, let's find the right context for her voice and the right way to sell this. And um, uh, he was the one that kind of pushed Burt Bacharach's song um, close to you. Uh, and and he, he was very um, hands-on with the recording session and kind of helping them um, structure that. Um, I mean, obviously it was Richard and Karen with the vocal arrangements, and um, but I think it was maybe Herb Albert's idea to bring in the flugelhorn. And um, but then um, that that was a hunch. That was his hunch. And Herb Albert said before they released it, this could either go really yeah. well or it could fall flat on its face. But luckily, it. it Turned out into um, you know uh, rocketed. To well, they made them, didn't they? That was a huge, yeah. huge hit. Exactly. It's just interesting. Dave and I were talking about this. I think Hal Blaine was at that session. I think he plays drums yeah. on that from the Wrecking Crew, and he yeah. talked about how her mum was at the session too, and how incredibly controlling her mum was. Her mum's simultaneously complaining about the fact that she's not being allowed to play drums, but also insisting that Richard is the star and all that. Yes, and it made yes. me think, you know, that must have been incredibly unusual for somebody. She wasn't the manager or anything. She wasn't there in an official capacity. You know, how did Karen feel about her mother being at those sessions? I mean, that's a very yes. different situation. Um, so I think for, for Karen, um, um, the, the the parents were, I mean, we'd use the term helicopter parent these days, wouldn't we? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> Parents were literally, they were still living at home with their parents, um, uh, even after the first few albums. And oh, yeah, when they're 23 and 26. I think Chris Charlesworth of The Melody Maker goes to interviews and finds they are literally living at home, aren't they? Well, the yeah. cover the cover of Now and Then, which is one of their biggest albums, is the, is the outside of the family home, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And though it, the, I thought this was quite funny. Um, you know, it gets to a point where Richard and Karen are like, huh. Mum and Dad, maybe it is time, you, you know, you, you should think about moving out. And and, and they, they literally bought them a new house. But Mum and Dad just refused, dug their heels in and refused to leave because they were obviously just, I don't know, just enjoying the family all still being together. So Richard and Karen just moved into the house instead. Um, so, yes, they, I think it was quite claustrophobic for Karen, actually. Her mother's her mother was a very dominant influence and it was claustrophobic for her, um, particularly when she wanted to leave home and move into her own apartment and her mum threw a wobbly, like calling her a traitor. Um, there was a lot of pressure. Uh, it, it, for some reason, it was very important for Agnes Carpenter to kind of keep the family really um, uh, locked in together. Mm. Well, there are so many 
instances of how kind of chaperone she is. There's a bit where she meets Elvis Presley. I think she's with Petula Clark. And Elvis starts flirting with her. And and uh, Pet Clark immediately whisks her out of the room for her own safety. You know, and I think she was about, I don't know, 21, 22 or yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, you know, she could clearly look after herself. And, exactly. and Elvis fl- flirting with you might have been something she was quite well, interested in. Well, well, actually, yeah. No, and... Um, and- Looking at and thinking about that, I think Karen was probably quite interested in Elvis. And if Petula Clark hadn't been there, then maybe she would have got off with him. Um, yes, no, the, there was this sense that they were um, uh, a lot of wanting to protect her, protect the songbird. Um, and so I think that's why we, we're kind of left with this cultural image of Karen as being quite fragile, maybe a bit of a victim. Um, and I was surprised to find out how tough she was and how yeah. um, resilient, despite her terrible eating disorder and what she struggled with there, um, you know, in terms of her music, in terms of um, what she wanted to do. She had, you know, very, she was very determined and she had really, really strong ideas. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So there was always, there was always this, this problem with, with the drums, isn't there? They, yeah. the, the, it's the largest piece of equipment on stage. And therefore, yeah. if you have a tendency to hide, that's the place to go and hide because there's, there's the most stuff between you and the audience. Yeah. Do you think she felt that? Because... You know, as far as anybody was concerned, normal showbiz, if you've got a fabulous singer, you put them out the front. Yes, yes. And and certainly that's the model. But um, I think that proved, to be honest, I think that that was pretty disastrous for her because of her... Um, uh, she said that when she was, she was... They put a lot of pressure on her management, Richard, the record company, to step out from behind the drums... Um, and and just kind of stand up front. And she said that she felt petrified at that point. She felt incredibly exposed. Um, and in a way, she was being de-skilled. 
But um, also, she must have lost her identity to some extent because yeah, that's what it, she was known it, as. You know. it, it's also the, the the key knack of the lead singer of any kind is being having the nerve to stand out front on yeah. your own without anything. Yes, <laughs> and, and that's a really tough thing to do at any level. Yes, and it was very tough for her. Um, and I, you know, it does strike me. You know, talking to a lot of female artists, singers, um, they find that's the. There, there is part of that part of the job they find really challenging, the fact that they're under such scrutiny. And I think you have to be incredibly emotionally healthy and robust <laughs> to withstand that kind God, of... Yeah, because you see, gets... that, that's the thing. It's the, it's a combination of sensitivity and toughness, isn't it? You know, yes. to stand on stage in front of people takes a certain amount of toughness. Yes. Not everybody yes. has it. And it doesn't yes. always go along with the talent, you know. No. It, sometimes and, happens. And to have people reviewing you, and I think that in those days... A review, you know, sometimes it makes me laugh when I look at some of the uh, reviews. Um, we're so insensitive, you know, like yeah, yeah. her outfits and um, her figure, and no wonder it would, you know, give someone a complex. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. If you got if you got body image issues, yes, being, being yeah. an entertainer in front of people, yes, is yeah. the most terrible place to be because what. You can see it in the audience's eyes, regardless yeah. of what you read in the paper the following yeah. day or whatever. So yeah. that, that she was in a right. terrible, terrible state with that. Mm. So when did that start to manifest itself, uh, you know, within well, the, the Carpenter story? She, uh, so she did feel self-conscious. So around, I guess it was around 1974 when they were doing, they were stepping up the touring and they were very busy and touring, not just in America, but globally as well. And um, uh, Karen started to get very self-conscious about how she came across on TV or, or photographs or whatever. And, and she really started to um, get into this strong dieting and exercising regime um, was um, very particular about, um, you know, I'm just going to have a salad banks and my iced tea and that's it. And I talked to Rebecca Siegel, who was their tour manager from those 1974-75 tours. And she said that um, after a while, she noticed that Karen was losing weight and more and more weight. And she noticed that before the show, when when the whole band was sitting having supper, Carol would be artfully pushing her food around her plate and talking very animatedly, but not eating anything. And um, Rebecca said, you know, I felt like I needed to tell somebody, look, she's not eating. But she said at that time there was a culture of silence. There was yeah. no um, understanding of eating disorders, anorexia, um, and no sense of, um, as she put it, the slippery slope that she was on. And right. this wasn't helped, presumably, by there's quite a lot in the book about their 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 image, you know. And there's a moment where they go and to make a charity donation at the White House and meet mm. Nixon. And this is just during the Vietnam War, and it's rumours of Watergate have already happening. And so all those kind of associations must have been incredibly bad. They kicked Neil Sedaka, I think, off one of their tours, yes. Yes. and uh, yes. and immediately uh, for, for upstaging them, you know. And this yes. is yeah, the, yeah. the press just go absolutely mental just about how how kind of unfair how square they are so that must have been part of her psychological um, yeah. problem too I yeah guess. and I think she she was quite stung by that um because and I noticed that in 
in so it's funny isn't it in britain we we're we're very comfortable with pop music and we we've we've got that you know maybe going right back from the beatles onwards we we've got a real appreciation and love of pop music and we don't find it complicated but in america there you know there was such a divide be- between what they call the top 40 radio and um more alternative sounds and rock and the two seem very polarized even within A&M records itself um so some of the staff felt quite ambivalent about the carpenters and what they were working on with the carpenters um so and i think um both richard and karen got very frustrated with the way that they were consistently portrayed as white bread goody two shoes yeah um karen in particular because um, and again, you know, looking into it, I think um, that wasn't really her. There was there was so much more to her. And then when she got the opportunity to do some solo work, it's interesting that she went into a very different direction. Mm. Well, then she's she's she the final solo album that she made was a, was a, a a really major moment, wasn't it? Because it didn't cut was shelved, wasn't it? Tell yeah. us what happened there. She had a huge budget to make this record, yeah. and then they didn't like it and wouldn't wouldn't put it out. Yes, yes. So um, at first, um, A&M were really behind it and it was quite exciting. And, and she went over to New York and she's working with Phil Ramone. She was working with um, Billy Joel's backing band. I had some lovely interviews with those guys like Liberty DeVito, really straight talking Italian American. And they got on with her. They they had quite a kind of, you know, earthy humour, but she she enjoyed that. And she enjoyed exploring a different side to herself, different um, kind of working with more soul music. Before she went, Richard said to her, don't do disco. So, of course, she goes and does disco on some tracks. Um, there was a sense of her branching out and and um, maybe, you know, becoming slightly more rebellious. And, you know, the woman's allowed to. I mean, she was kind of coming up for, to her 30th birthday. So... I, I think she really was beginning to um, stretch, wanting to stretch as an artist. Um, so the fact that AM refused to put out the album because they didn't really understand it um, and it didn't fit in with the whole Carpenter's narrative, which by then was such a huge juggernaut, um, that, uh, yeah, she, she suffered and I think she felt... After that, she felt quite devastated. Um, has, has that record ever come out? It did come out in the late 90s, oh, mid-90s. Oh, did it? Okay, I'm going to yes. say. I surely. think eventually, yeah. Yes. It would do, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So so it's now, um, yes, yeah, so it came out in 96. Right. Um, and now you can hear she was moving into a whole new direction and talking to some of the uh, musicians, arrangers who worked on the album, people like Bob James, he said... This was the start of um, a new journey that had she survived, had she been more healthy, um, she he believes she would have had a great solo career alongside of the Carpenters. The crowning tragedy <clears throat> in the personal life is the marriage. Oh, my Lord. Which is just, yes. oh, yes. is a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, give, she, us the, give us she the marriage guy to that. that. She wants to go on a blind date, doesn't she? (laughs) So she goes on a blind date, and it's this guy called Tom Burris, who's a real estate developer, inverted commas, um, who um, apparently had never heard of the Carpenters. They always say that. Yeah. (laughs) That might have been quite an attractive thing in a weird way, actually. But anyway. 
Well, yes, I think it probably tickled her, but you kind of think 1980, we've had yeah. 10 years of like number one and number two hits. How, you know, has he been living under a rock? Um, and <clears throat> he, he um, sweet talked her and within three months was proposing, um, kind of rushing, uh, really rushing her into marriage. So, of course, everyone around her, their antennae went up, like, who's this guy? Um, but she she so wanted to be married. She so wanted to have children. And that's the, that's the really sad thing about this, um, that she she got married. Um, and I thought she discovered three days beforehand that A, he had a 19-year-old son, and B, that he had a vasectomy. Oh, yes. Wasn't that, that was just three days before the marriage, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, and this is the, this is the kind of, um, uh, you know, thinking about her mother, Agnes, um, she went to her mother and said, well, you know, he's been lying. He's had this vasectomy and I, I, I want to have children and what, what the hell am I going to do? And I, I don't want to get married to him. And Agnes is, you made your bed, now you lie in it. We booked like, the coronation we chicken. The we got the table fancies. Exactly. That's right. we, we've got the photographers coming. Oh, really, God. Oh, wow. That's but, just... But, the, uh, <laughs> By then, she was lost in showbiz, wasn't she? Really, it was, you know, you're committed to doing it, you know. It's, yes, it's, yes. It's, and, uh, like, you know, they'd even gone so far as to record, and it's not one of my yes. favourite tracks, is that that kind of wedding song. Yes. And hiring a whole orchestra and, oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah. 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 You have to strip that stuff away. So, you know, you know what, what was... Uh, you know what's what's so special about her in in your view? Summing it all up. So summing it up, I think her voice is just absolutely remarkable, and it's so full of emotion, and it communicates um, intense feeling, love, romance, pain, everything, um, but quite restrained at the same time. So she never overdoes it, um, and but you it has a resonance that, that stays with you. And the other thing is her drumming is brilliant. You know, you listen to some early albums and there's some really out there tracks, like another song, which I think is on um, the second album, where she just goes into this complete drum break and improvisation at the end. And um, with um, such skill and, and kind of um, joie de vivre, you, you can't help being taken along with it. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think as a performer and as a singer, um, really um, unequaled. Do you think that her life story affected people's appreciation of the music? Do you think in some ways that's that's that they're not as recognised as they should be because people find that it hard to disassociate it from that terrible element of tragedy? Yeah, yeah. and I think, and I, in a way, that's partly why I did the book because I thought that, that, that her tragic... Um, passing has really dominated how we view her and how we see her. And it does, um, it makes it very sad. But I, I do feel like enough time has elapsed now. It's 40 years ago since she died. Um, God, maybe, yeah, she died in 83. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I feel now maybe we can we can just um, appreciate um, her voice and what she, her gift to the world is what I say. I mean, um, and it sounds a bit corny, but that's how I felt. That's really how I felt it. And I kind of feel like she, I, in a way, there is, um, I feel like she's free. 
she's free and her her voice has has survived and um it's there moving people um it's there kind of inspiring us i i put a little chapter at the end about my trip to la and going to um the old am am recording studios and the lovely Fariel who kind of organizes the studios there and she took me into studio b and and she'd sort of um put these candles on and lit these candles and she she, she got the engineer to play um, a song for you. And it was such a remarkable experience to be in that studio listening to something that was recorded there. It was like an echo of an echo. Um, it was so powerful um, getting the atmosphere of, of where they'd recorded. Well, there's the book, Lead Sister, The Story of Karen Carpenter by Lucy O'Brien, out now. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 